Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Allison. Hi, I'm Allison, a compulsive overeater. Hi, it is so great to be here. Thank you, Leslie. And uh, it's so funny. Leslie and I have known each other for 25 years, but when she called me to ask me, she didn't know she was calling me, and I didn't know it was her. And so we were completely like, you know, neutral. Would you like to speak to me? Sure, that would be great. I'm skiing on a ski lift. Can you call me back? And then she forgot to call me back, and so I saw her someplace else, and I said, someone named Leslie from your meeting called and asked me to speak. And she's like, oh, that was me. I'm like, oh, that was me. Um, um, so it's just kind of funny. So thank you, Leslie. And I want to thank my posse for coming. I really, it was really great. All four of us drove up in the car. And in true compulsive reader fashion, the conversation after about 30 minutes turned to food and just, you know, all the different weird things we all, we all eat. And, um, and it was pretty funny. And, and congratulations to the CHIP people and, you know, birthday people. It's a very big deal. And, and I, I think Anina summed it up really well when she said in a year so much has changed. And, to me, that is what the miracle of Overeaters Anonymous is, is the fundamental change in who I am to the depths of my soul as a person. I am so different from who I was when I came in here. And um, just to qualify, my abstinence date is June, June 17, 1989. So that means I have 20 years, 10 months, and a few weeks. And... Um, that is just miraculous. That is not, I, however, I came into OA 25 years ago. And so this is, yeah, I got asked to speak at a meeting in a few weeks, and they're like, it's recovery from relapse, but you've never relapsed. I said, yeah, I, I relapsed a lot, you know, but I just haven't relapsed in 20 years. And that is just amazing to me. That is just miraculous, and it's a lot of hard work. I am, um, this program takes guts. You know, I was thinking, um, before I came up, you know, I just said, God, please keep me humble. And then it just made me think. It's like this is just such a humbling, frigging program sometimes. You know, what this disease brings us to, it is just pervasive. And not so much anymore because I'm, you know, I'm absent a really long time. You know, my life is not about my disease anymore. My life is very, very much about my recovery and how to live life on life's terms without using food to the best of my abilities. And the longer I stay abstinent, it's, you know, because we're in OA, you can always use gym analogy. It's like going to the gym. The first time you go to the gym after having not been there for years, you're going to be sore for a while. And then eventually, if you keep going or consistent, you get stronger and stronger and stronger. Consequently, God has thrown a lot more things my way because I'm stronger. Thank you. Um, it's okay. I cope. But I'm grateful. I wouldn't trade a single, and you'll, you'll hear, I've, I've Quite a bit of stuff has happened in my life since I've gotten abstinent. Um, I wouldn't trade a single day of it, not a day. You know, I don't ever, ever want to feel the way I felt before I got abstinent again, not in my entire life. I've had, up until I was about, I don't know, five years abstinent, I was suicidal a lot. I haven't been suicidal in 15 years, I think. And, uh, you know, I just, I had a lot of emotions. So just to qualify, um, I am a hard core, binge-eating, compulsive overeater. I am not bulimic, but I feel like if you are bulimic, will relate to a lot of the emotions that I've had. I tried bulimia. Melissa um, and I would be at the top of her house in Bel Air, and we would binge our brains out and drink, you know, as much water as we could, and we'd lean over the toilet, and she could throw up, and I couldn't. And I was just so despondent about that, because I was a model at the time, and um, it would have been very helpful to have discovered bulimia. And, um, because my modeling career would have lasted longer than two years. And, um, 
So would have stayed skinny. I couldn't stay skinny as a model. I was a, a big model. I was a 17 cover girl, and I was working. And when I could maintain 112 pounds, I'm five foot eight. And I weigh. I have no idea what I weigh now. Probably like 130. I would work, and I would work a lot. But as soon as I got up to 114, it would take about two pounds. I the work just stopped. And uh, and I did it from 15 to 17 years old. I was on the cover of Seventeen magazine, and like I said, and you know, I up until that point, I had been. Um, up until I was 15 and went off to New York to model, I was a teased, unattractive, chubby, neither here nor there, compulsive overeating, blank kid. I had no personality to speak of, really. I just was sort of this being in the universe and uh, sort of taking up space. Felt very insecure. I, I, I really, I was that kid that got picked on. Um, I was miserable all the time. And I went on a diet when I was close to 15, and I got really, really, really skinny. And I was on vacation with my parents in New York. Some guy just came up to me on the street, tried to molest me a little bit. Um, <laughs> I wasn't, I, I knew what was going on, so I just made him stop. But he took me to an agency called Elite, owned by this guy, John Casablancas. And they walked me in. You know, my parents were off at some convention. I had no makeup on, you know, long, stringy hair. But I was skinny, and they just said, would you like to come to New York for the summer? And then I was off and running. You know, but what had happened is I've been a compulsive reader since I was eight, and I'm a um, quantity compulsive reader and I'm a hardcore sugar addict. Sugar is my absolute number one drug of choice in my entire life is sugar. And so my abstinence is, it has been for the last 20 and a half years, is three meals a day with no sugar and obvious dessert forms. And that has held me well. I don't binge either. So that is my abstinence. If I were to binge, I've had big meals in abstinence. I've had meals where my stomach hurts in abstinence. I've been to parties where I've eaten more than I should have eaten because I was at a party in a social situation. And um, by the way, I have a lot of opinions. So just <laughs> get rid of the opinions that you don't like. It's totally fine. Unless I quote the big book, it's my opinion. Um, but my opinion is that for me as a compulsive overeater, I have a, a, a really hard time walking out the door in the morning and going and doing social stuff, you know, because I'm just so incredibly and, – and I talk about is it a present, but it's really not anymore, not in the same way it was before. But back then, I was just so incredibly self, hyper self-conscious all the time of who I was, how you were responding to me, what was I saying, how was I actually, did you like me, did you not like me, you know, I mean, it was just this, I mean, my head, hello, constant. Oh, so what I was going to say is of the party. So still to this day, if I go to a party, sometimes I'll call in my food to my sponsor and I'll say one plate, you know, and, and that's it. Because it can, if I don't do that, it can get really tricky, all those appetizers and then the later dinner and all that stuff. I eat more, but I don't beat myself up. I didn't binge. That's okay, and I didn't eat any of the desserts. And I know for me, so I have not, since October 24th, 1985, I have not had sugar in any obvious dessert forms, except when I was going to school at UCLA, I was working in a student store, and Bazooka Gum had these fortunes on them, and one of the fortunes was, um, you will marry soon, and the Bazooka Bubblegum had sugar in it, and I wanted that you will marry soon fortune so badly. I was 24 years old, but I had to have that Bazooka Bubblegum fortune, and so I ate that Bazooka Bubblegum, so I don't say, you know, I am off for sure. I definitely, my abstinence is, is June 17th, 1989, and that's, and that's a date that I, that I feel is so important. Every time I sponsor somebody, I'm like, write your abstinence date in your big book. If you have to cross it out, you have to cross it out, but it's so good to have a date, and I love it that this meeting has it where you raise your hand if you're in a first 30 days, because that is one of the reasons I believe I'm an abstinence, because I went to meetings that made me raise my hand. I wanted that 30 days, no matter what, because I didn't want to raise my hand anymore. They do that in AA. I also, just for the record, I'm about to um, 
a week from Sunday, a week from tomorrow, I'll have 25 years of sobriety. And uh, at 21 years old, I got here to these programs. And thank you, God, because I grew up here. I became an adult here. I was so childlike when I came in. What food did for me at the youngest ages, earliest memories, I'm a compulsive eater. I have one memory of, as a child of um, putting food down. Um, but up until then, you know, um, I always ate whatever was put in front of me. I, like I said, I would just consume. I'm capable of eating five or 6,000 calories a day, no problem. Um, half of it or more of it is usually sugar. And uh, what food did for me from the earliest ages is it just pressed down on the inside of me and numbed me. It didn't get me high. It made me low quite a bit, but it made me numb, and it just and it made my whole life either about my weight or my food, so I didn't have to really focus on what was really kind of going on out there that wasn't comfortable in my skin. You know, so it and, it, and my natural state right before I got here is curtains closed. This is back when videos, um, videos, cream puffs, and uh, eclairs from the local bakery, a bong, and sweats, unshowered, and no makeup. <laughs> That, to me, at that time in my life, 25 years ago, was where I was absolutely the happiest I could possibly be. I was just like Mecca. Um, but I needed money, so my job was cocktail waitressing, so it kind of worked out perfect. I would be, you know, eating all this sugar and getting stoned and watching movies during the day with the curtains closed. And then, and I was expanding, so it was good because my little cocktail waitress outfit was spandex. And so I just sort of expanded each month I was on that job, and the outfit expanded with me. And a little teeny skirt, but I just, you know. And um, then I would go and work in my bar at night, and I would drink at night, because I needed drink to be social. I needed food to just basically get by. And I was seeing a therapist at the time, and the very, very first session, she goes, you need to go to an eating disorders unit. And, uh, and I was like, oh, my God, we know what's wrong. Okay, cool. I went home, rushed to tell my parents. And she said, great, honey, how much is it? And it was $10,000 for a month. And this is back in 1985. And uh, they're like, that's great, honey. No. So then she got me to go to AA. And then I also started going to AA for OA meetings. At that AA for OA meetings, they would have you raise your hand if you were in your first 30 days of abstinence. And every single week I was raising my hand. I could not get off, I could not get off of sugar. I just, the sugar would just scream at me, scream. And then finally I got in 28 days and I ate sugar again. And I was the most days I'd ever gone without sugar. And I was just dying inside. I was so mortified that I was going to have to raise my hands again. And I wound up um, from that day. So it was October 23rd, 1985. I didn't have sugar and obviously dessert forms except for a little bazooka bubblegum thing. And that was God. And i got to tell you, God is huge. If I had the kind of abstinence where sugar was screaming at me all the time, I would not be your speaker. I would not be up here. I needed... Step two, that God restore me to stand everything. I needed that in the hugest way to happen. My disease is so big and so enormous and so in my head and so all-pervasive that I needed God to completely kick in and just remove the obsession. It couldn't have anything to do with white-knuckling. It was white-knuckling at first. So my, feel, my feeling, my opinion is I needed to white-knuckle it for the first week or two. Not so that God could test my sincerity, but so I could test my own sincerity. Like, how badly did I want this? Was I willing to go through some pain? And what God did is he came in and restored me to sanity, and he took away the obsession. That is how it worked for me. 
What happened those first few years that I was in OA is the obsession to eat sugar was removed. The obsession to binge was not. And so my abstinence at that time was three binges a day, not to last longer than an hour in length. And I sponsored people, and I took candles, and I got up to where I had like two and a half years. But the shame in me was just so pervasive. I just knew on some deep level I didn't have this thing. And even though they tell you don't leave, I decided I had to leave. I had to go out there and explore some more. I had to go try how. I had to go try Weight Watchers. I had to to just um, try to get myself through college. And I, I, I ate a lot through college. And um, a lot of tra- bags, huge bags of trail mix in the library. I mean, and I, and I get expanded and everything. Um, and then what happened is I was about four and a half years sober. And I, I came to an epiphany. And the epiphany was, is I have stopped growing. AA had taken me as far as it was going to take me emotionally. And I needed to clean up my food in order to live life. In order to actually be able to go out there and achieve what I really wanted to achieve. I didn't come and do these 12-step programs just to languish. I came here to grow and to thrive. I didn't want to be cursed with potential anymore. And that's what I was. I was just one big ball of potential. And so what happened is I went to the Saturday morning um, log cabin meeting, and they asked for people, just anybody who was new to OA, and even though I'd been to hundreds of OA meetings, or at least, you know, 100, I raised my hand to seeing brand spanking new and knowing nothing. And I feel like that was so important to act like I was new because I was. You know, in AA, they don't let people get away with it. You know, you can't just sort of come to AA and drink and then draw and drink and then just, like, you know, hang out. I mean, everybody's like, how long is sober? How long is sober? You know, in OA, you, you, can, you can fly under the radar here because we're so, we're, like, really anonymous in OA, I think, you know, because for me, in my opinion, we're just, we're afraid. You know, we don't like people so much. We don't like being out and about so much all the time. And, um, and it, it's just that self-consciousness. So I pretended like I was brand new because I was. And the very next day, I went again, and it was Serenity Sunday, and I raised my hand as being brand spanking new at my first, second, or third OA meeting, and I got my sponsor that day. And she put me through some steps that changed my life. She had me do a deep cleaning, rotorootering out of my fundamental personality, and she gave me an abstinence that I had no idea was possible. When I came back to OA, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what abstinence was supposed to look like. I had not a clue what this thing was going to be. And it is amazing. I mean, it's just it's beyond my wildest dreams that I can live like this, that I look fairly normal out there. Every once in a while, the other night I was having dinner with my husband or something, and I was really hungry, and we were in a hurry, and I was, like, wolfing down something. And he's like, you can slow down. I'm like, you know what? I'm not a slow eater. You know, just not. I like food. I mean, you know, my sponsor has this one thing she says. She goes, the food has to be yummy. You know, I mean, I want my food to be yummy. I... I will always have an unusual relationship with food. The question becomes, to what degree? On a scale of 1 to 10, is it a 10 unusual or is it a 2 unusual, you know? And most of my life, it's a 1 or 2 unusual. You know, I look, I look okay out there. I've had, um, and just also to my, so I have, a, I have my abstinence, but I also have a food plan. And the food plan has just evolved. If I break my food plan, I've not broken my abstinence. What my food plan is, is um, I don't drink caffeine anymore because I'm a bitch on caffeine. Um, I, uh, I don't eat fruit juice sweetened or sugar-free stuff anymore because can I just say, unless you want to know, back in 1985, there were no options for sugar-free fruit juice sweetened stuff. I mean, you had to, like, run to Mrs. Gooch's, and it was gross. It was like these things that were hard as a rock and bricks. And, you know, now, I mean, my local Vaughn's has this beautiful sugar-free section. And um, I'm like, I can't do it. I can't do it moderately. And so... 
years ago, I gave up the fruit juice sweet and stuff. I, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And then about five or six or seven years ago, I gave up um, the sugar-free stuff, which my husband really appreciates because it's little gashes, that sugar-free stuff. Um, <laughs> to be like, honey, I'm going to need sugar-free stuff. Just don't come close. Um, you know, and I, I'll share that this is an interesting thing, though, about sugar-free stuff is that we would go, um, I have a life now, and so we would actually go to social events, and we were, a couple of years ago, we were at a social event without my kids with some people that were my husband's friends, have no idea I'm in program, because most people don't question, they just think this is who I am, I don't eat sugar. But this woman would make me a sugar-free dessert, and I couldn't believe it, but I was caught off guard, and I didn't know how to turn that down. Because, you know, as compulsive readers, we're always self-conscious. How are we coming across? I mean, the last thing we want is to draw attention to ourselves in relation to food. And so I wound up eating some of it. I had my husband eat some of it. And it was just it was sugar-free pudding. I mean, it's, like I said, it's my food plan, not my abstinence. And, and I hadn't eaten in a long time. And, you know, it wasn't even that good. I wasn't even enjoying it because at the time I was just like knowing this was not okay. And so I... So when I left, I got to talk to my husband because he knows I don't eat sugar-free stuff. And, and so we came up for a plan of action for the next time it happened. And so, the, and so everybody, I want you to use this tip. The next time it happened, um, we were at their house. She made it for me. I said, oh, my God, thank you so much. But I ate so much for dinner. I'm stuffed. Can I take it in a goodie bag? <laughs> and I took it in a goodie bag, you know, and threw it out. You know, I didn't have to hurt anybody. Because I just didn't. It was just awkward. And I hated that, that I couldn't figure that out. But I thought, well, it's a good story to share at meetings if I'm speaking. Because I feel like we're always trying to figure out how not to draw extra attention to ourselves. Here's a, another small story about that. I, um, my wedding, I had two weddings. My husband's Indian, and um, I had decided to have an Indian wedding, an American wedding. My in-laws, who are very Indian, know that I don't eat sugar. They don't get it. Now, they don't eat meat. I don't question that. But <laughs> um, the sugar thing, it was just a lose them. And so they gave, and they don't eat fruit, so they got a cake with strawberries and whipped cream on top of this cake. We've got 250 People, two of them, 200 Indians, I don't even know, 50 people that are my invited guests. Cam, video cameras rolling, cameras clicking, cake cutting time. They have taken a strawberry out of the whipped cream and handed it to me. And I'm like, I can't eat it. You know, it's the whipped cream. I mean, I'll be damned if I'm going to lose my abstinence over a strawberry and whipped cream in front of 250 people. You know, cameras rolling. I'm like, can't do it. you got to go find me some sugar pieces. I left and went to go try to find a bowl of fruit. You know, it's like everything halted for like 10 minutes. And you know what? That's how important my abstinence is to me. You know, I I will not give this thing up for anything. And um, I uh, the, quite a bit has happened in, in um, my recovery. There, there are three things that sort of plagued me um, my entire recovery. One was my relationship with my mother, very, very complicated. Um, one is that I really wanted to be a wife and a mom. And the other one is work. I... Um, Here's why I'm abstinent today. It's because I'm willing to change. I'm willing to face my fears. I'm willing, I've always had a sponsor, and I've always been willing to take direction. Even if in my head or even verbally I'm saying, no, I don't want to do that, I do it. Because as soon as I make the decision to stand still and not change, my disease starts doing push-ups. And it is there, and it is just going strong. And I know it. And I don't want to feel, I don't want to just be abstinent. I want to be comfortable in my skin. You know, I don't want to be walking through the world in high anxiety and depression. I am so prone to depression. I mentioned earlier I'm, I was very prone to suicidal thoughts my entire life. And like I said, I didn't leave until I was about five years abstinent. So I have to do a lot to take care of myself. I exercise. I make sure my food is fairly clean. 
and I do what I'm told, and I always work at trying to be a better person in the world, you know, and trying to sort of work on myself, as much as I would love to just rest on my laurels. So with work, I am... Um, I am not a worker among workers. I don't like work. Um, I always just wanted to be a housewife. Um, but that really wasn't, I, I didn't have a trust fund, so it's like, it was kind of necessary to work. And, and I always felt like I was playing dress up every single day that I was putting on a Halloween costume and going out there and pretending to know what I was doing. And apparently I was good at what I did, but I never felt it because I am so fundamentally insecure. But what was really great is that the outside world could never figure that out. They didn't know. As long as they didn't walk into somebody's office going, I'm a loser. You have no idea. I have not a clue what I'm doing. They never could tell. You know? And so I would just walk in, like I've been talking to walk into meetings and come up here and speak. Like, you know, whether I'm nervous or not, you know, the idea is, you know, I, I can tell you I'm nervous because you guys will accept me. But, um, and what I said, I just showed up and looked alert, you know, and I kept getting promoted and I eventually wound up getting, getting to start my own company, which was really great. And, uh, you know, because I just was willing to push through my fears. And I remember I had to do one last huge fear-based thing right before um, I got to finally quit working, because um, I am now a stay-at-home housewife. And it was just such an enormous challenge that I just thought I couldn't do. And and that's my higher power working in my life, is putting these things in my life so that I can figure out that I lived. You know, even though my anxiety in my head is telling me, oh, my God, you're going to die. This is bigger than me. I cannot do this. I have been trained to do it whether my head approves or not. You know, whether I have been taught very early on, I have to act my way into right thinking. I cannot think my way into right acting. If I try to think my way into right acting, I will just sit at home with the curtains closed, maybe not smoking a bong and maybe not eating sugar, but with sweats on, no makeup, and pretty much depressed and suicidal. You know, because my head will will pull me down any opportunity it gets if I let it. I um, I really wanted to be a wife and a mom. And then I also had this complicated relationship with my mom. She um, was an amazing person, just a really um, dynamic, smart, interesting, controlling, critical, larger than life, huge presence. And I was an only child. And, you know, and, and she couldn't, she didn't raise me, but she had a lot of influence over me. And, um, OA taught me how to have a relationship with her, whether I wanted to or not, and I did. And OA has taught me over and over again how to show up and look alert and act as if, because given my own devices, I wouldn't, you know. And um, what wound up happening is my mom got very, very sick, and we couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I had been, at this point, I was 10 years abstinent, 15 years sober. I had been speaking in OA meetings for years about wanting to be a wife and my mom. It was my big lament, and it just wasn't happening. I wasn't even, you know, I would go long periods of stretches without dating. I would, the guys I would date were the right ones. I was describing this guy on the way up here um, who I was dating about 16 years ago, and uh, he was 19 years older than me. He had been married four times. <laughs> he was sober. He had that going for him. And we did the dance, and we were dating, and uh and he was going to the same aimings I was going to and stuff like that. And I finally, after about a year and a half, and about, believe it or not, in absence, about 10 pounds. By the way, I, I have no idea what I weigh now. I'm just digressing. I have not a clue what I weigh. I haven't been on a scale willingly in years. If I go to the doctor's office, I turn around and tell them I don't want to know. Um, I figure my weight is none of my business in any way, shape, or form. I know when I'm eating too much. I know when I'm gaining weight. I don't need a scale to tell me. And my experience has been when I get on a scale... If it says I weigh too much, I get depressed, and I eat more. 
And if I get on a scale and it says I weigh less than I thought, I get all excited and I eat more. <laughs> so, I don't get on a scale at all. Um, the highest, the last time I got on a scale at my highest weight, which way before abstinence, obviously, was um, I'd gotten up to 167 pounds. For me, that was pretty big because I'm really small-boned. And then I just knew better than to ever get on a, you know, to get on a scale again until I was actually heading downwards. So, like, I have no idea where I am now, but I'm sure I got much, much higher than 167, and I've been lower than this. Um, my husband can attest I was a little bit skinnier at our wedding. He was, too, though. Okay, I was talking about wanting to get married. Oh, so I'd be speaking at these OA meetings, and my whole lament was I want to be a wife and a mom, and, you know, that, that wasn't happening. And, you know, I was dating this guy, Alan, and I finally, about a year and a half sober, I, um, or, no, about a year and a half into dating, five years so five years abstinent, I um, came to the conclusion that I needed to leave. What abstinence has given me that is so unbelievable is instincts. When I was compulsively overeating, I lost instincts. I lost my ability to discern what I really needed. And what abstinence has given me is instincts. And instincts to me are God-given. And so God gave me the instinct to leave. And it was a torturous decision because this was my man that I was going to get married to and have kids with. Now, he did have a vasectomy. That would have been a little problematic. Um, but I swear I was going to get it reversed. Um, and you can see the craziness. Um, and so I left. And I told you, I had been suicidal all my life. And what the suicidal was, was that inability to see ahead and to deem that whatever it was I was going through was going to get better. My disease cannot look ahead and say, ah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. I mean, when are we ever like, ah, it's going to be great. My disease was, oh, my God, this is bad. I'm screwed. I've always been screwed. I might as well die now. And um, for the first few years I was in program, I never actually tried to commit suicide, but I thought about it a lot. And for the first years in program, one of the things that kept me going is I heard this great speak, and he said he realized he didn't want to kill himself. He wanted to kill the moment. And it's so true because when I was in that just dark, dark place of the soul, that moment would be so overpowering and so intense that I would just want to die because I couldn't stand the feeling any longer and I, and I could not project ahead and realize that I was going to come out of that feeling. So that kept me going for a while. And then when I was about five years abstinent, when I left Allen, I was living in, I'd rent, was doing a room over in Santa Monica and it's just everything was turned upside down and I didn't have a job and I just, it was just a mess. It was just an absolute horrible mess. And I was totally suicidal, and I did what I've been taught to do. I've been taught to go to a meeting when I feel that way. You know, my disease wants to stay home, you know, because my disease tells me, turn on the television, you'll feel better. But my recovery tells me, get to a meeting. And I went to, a, I went to an AA meeting that I've never been to before and I haven't been to since. But I sat in that meeting and I sobbed, just sobbed, because you can do that here. You know, I'm sponsoring somebody right now who's going through a lot, and I told her, she's at something right now that I sent her to, and she texted me, and she's like, I want to die, this is hell. And, uh... I, did, I told her, I said, you know, I texted her back and I said, tell somebody. But that's not in her nature. You know, that's so much not in our nature. We want to just sort of keep it in and pretend like we look it on the outside. And it's like, around here, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to tell you we're crazy so that the other person can say, oh, yeah, I get it. And so I sat in that meeting and I sobbed. And this voice came to me, and I believe it was the voice of God. And the voice was, I want to see what happens. And it was this quiet, subtle, okay, let's see. Because at that point I was... Nine years sober and five years abstinent, and it was like, okay, I've gotten this far. I can't believe this is really the end. Surely there must be something else. And so I 
stopped crying, and I left that meeting. Like I said, I've never been back to it since, and I also haven't been suicidal since. Not like that. I have gone to dark, dark, crazy, insane, horrible places of the soul, but I haven't wanted to die. So fast forward a few years later, because God is severe. If somebody had come down to me and said, Allison, you're going to be 10 years abstinent and 15 years sober, and before you meet your man, I would have... I would have said no. I mean, I, I like, I'm sorry, I don't want that plan, you know. And um, so it's a really good thing that we don't go to psychics and try to figure. I got, don't worry. Um, it's a really good thing to know that that we don't know what the plan is because I needed every shred of experience between dating, living life, whatever, before I actually met my incredibly normy husband. I mean, real normy. The man has never smoked a joint or a cigarette. <laughs> Never binged, you know. Um, he did tell me when I met him, he said, if I said he had to give up alcohol, he would have been like, okay. But if I said I, he had to give up sugar, he would have been like, ooh, that's kind of a deal killer. But he's not a compulsive overeater, but he just, you know, he likes his sweets. You know, go for it. He's normie. You can have one cookie. I've never met just one cookie. So, anyways, I met my husband at the exact same time my mom was being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Bad, bad, bad cancer. And it was really a bizarre juxtaposition to be falling in love at the same time as having to sort of really be there for my mom. My mom lived for three years, and during that time we courted, we dated, um, and he asked me to marry him. After about a year and a half of being together, we got married, and first night of, you know, cause I really wanted kids, and he said that he, and so the first night of, you know, that honeymoon night, check the birth control, woohoo, let's have that with the babies, and it wasn't happening. So not happening. So not God's will for us to have babies. Um, and so we went to some specialists, and so we finally had to do the route of in vitro, and we did our first round of in vitro at the same time. Um, I was coming off of bed rest when my mom was admitted to ICU, and in ICU, it was when she was in ICU, or maybe she'd just come out of it, that we had found out that we were pregnant, and it was a really enormous deal. And it was like it was my mom's dying wish because we knew she was dying, and. Um, and at that point, so much had been healed in that relationship. I didn't have the relationship with my mom I wanted. I really didn't. I mean, on her deathbed, you know, she was saying, honey, stop slouching. Stand up straight or you're pregnant, you know. <laughs> um, bless her heart. But that was the best she could do. But on, but it be, to be able to tell her we were pregnant, it was like her dying wish. And she died on a, on a Sunday morning. And then on that next Wednesday, I miscarried. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the most challenging thing I've ever had to experience in my abstinence or my recovery on any level. That I didn't get. That made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. I could not put that in a nice, neat God's will box. You know, that was cruel, in my opinion, and unnecessary and uncalled for and made no sense. And I lost my faith in God in that moment of time. I became terrified of God. Up until that time, I had complete trust that God was there, God handled me, that God was going to get me through anything. Because that's, to me, what this program is about. God doesn't come down and say, I'm going to give you all these wonderful, fabulous things once you get recovered, because that's what we want. We want you to be happy with things. What God has promised me in my recovery is I will get you through anything. I will get you through. You don't have to die, and you don't have to compulsively. I will get you through. I promise. Give me your will, and I will get you through, and I will restore you to sanity. And so what happened is um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Christian minister on the phone, and she said something about God. And this is Wednesday, so the, the DNC was supposed to be the next day, so I just found out that day that my baby wasn't viable, and my husband had gone back to work. And um, I was talking to my friend, the Christian minister, and, and she said something about God, and I said, I don't trust God. 
I don't, I don't believe God is here. And it was like the first time in my recovery that I'd actually really had turned away from God. And after I hung up the phone with her, I, I just, I laid down on my kitchen floor and I just started sobbing in that fetal position, uncontrollable crying, and I could not get up. I could not move. And, um, and I laid there, I don't know how long I laid there for, and finally that same voice that came to me 10 years before, 11 years before, and that voice was, I want to see what happens. And with that voice, I was eventually able to get off the floor, and I got up, and I went forward, and we did another round of in vitro and had another miscarriage, and we did another round of in vitro, and that one didn't even take, and we got on the phone, and we called adoption agencies. And I got really, really obsessed with trying to adopt a baby, just obsessed. We are going to adopt it from India, because my husband's Indian. And... Um, and I called my sponsor. I'm like, I'm really, really obsessed with adopting this baby. And we don't, we're only two weeks into the process. And adopting a baby from India is a year and a half to two years. It's a long haul, this adoption process. And I'm two weeks into it and just out of my mind obsessed. And my husband wanted to halt the adoption process. And so I called my sponsor. And I said, no, my husband wants to halt the adoption process and do yet another round of in vitro. He wasn't the one getting the shots. And... Um, <laughs> And she said, and I said, but it's really God's will to do the adoption process. Because at that point, even in that two weeks, things were falling into place that weren't supposed to be falling into place. But she said, Allison, it is not God's will if it is not your husband's will too. And I hated that direction. I hated that. I hated her so much in that moment. When I hung up the phone, I just started sobbing in my little fetal position again. And, um, and I did not want to move. And, but I've been trained. I have been trained that when I can't hear God, I can hear my sponsor. And so I just got to trust that sometimes maybe she's channeling him a little better than I am with a little more clarity. And, um, and I said, okay, God, I surrender. I will do this. I will do another round of the future. I will stop the adoption process. And two hours later, my adoption agency called me and they said, how are you doing? I said, I'm great. And I was really, you know, really pretty darn depressed. And um, she said, you know, we had this really unusual thing happen. She goes, we had a little baby that was assigned to another family, and they can't take her. Would you like her? Mm-hmm. Two hours after surrendering. Two weeks into a process supposed to take two years. And we brought Karina home five and a half months later. Karina's adoption took exactly six months to the day, from the very first phone call I made to them to bringing her home on an airplane. We brought her home on my husband's birthday. Um... She, um, the Indian government granted us full rights to her, like where nobody could ever take her away from us on the one-year anniversary of my mom's death. It's in paper, this beautiful document. And, um, and she was born a day after my first miscarriage. You can't tell me there's not a God. And you can't tell me he's not here. And that he's doing some pretty incredible things. And um, you know what? It, it's, um, life hasn't always been easy. I've had some pretty darn big deaths in my family. My stepmother died at 43 years old of a brain aneurysm. It was my love of my dad's life. That was really tragic. She was like the mom I always wanted and got. And, um, you know, we, um, we went on and we adopted a second son. And this one, I, uh, or we adopted a second child. And um, I remember my husband, he was saying, I don't really want to adopt yet. I want to kind of wait a while, get used to this whole thing with Karina. And I'm like, let's just do it. And I didn't call my sponsor. I'm like, I just didn't want to tell her that my husband didn't want to adopt a second one yet, so because I, I really wanted a second one. And I knew it was going to take th- th- another two years. Well, he took seven months to bring home start to finish, and my kids are 11 months apart, and I paid for that little act of self-will. Um, it, it was up there for a long, long time. Six months ago, I, I drove myself to Al-Anon. And it's so hard to be an Al-Anon because I don't have an alcoholic coffer. I have a six- and seven-year-old, and they, I have, every time I see the words alcohol or alcoholic, I have to replace Karina and Kevin crazy um, to get me sane. You know, but I am willing to change, and I realized just my ANOA programs weren't doing it. I needed something even bigger, and I didn't want to be in three programs, but here I am. You know, I am... Um, I have a life.
life that is beyond my wildest dreams. I am exceeding all expectations or potential of me. I am content. I am happy much of the time. Not all of the time. I mean, this, this last month has been wacky. I've got medical stuff going on. I'm seeing an, I've had shoulder. I have a tear in my shoulder. I've got a bone spur in my hip. I've seen an acupuncturist, and the very first time I saw her, she sort of fixed, I was telling us in my meeting the other day, um, she uh, fixed my, uh, the very first time I saw her, she got my shoulder to be like 50% better, which was like, oh my God, because I didn't have any faith in acupuncture, I'm like, this thing really works, so the next time I saw her, she's like doing that little thing they do on the wrist, and she's like, oh, your blood, your blood, you need to stop eating raw vegetables and cold beverages. And to me, like, don't mess with my food. You know, I love my food plan. I'm perfectly contented. I'm a salad whore. And, um, <laughs> you know, I don't eat them for breakfast, lunch, but I eat a salad almost every day for lunch because I love it. It's yummy to me. I eat it with Cheez-Its. It's just, it's the bomb to me. And she's telling me, you know, no salads. And I'm like, are you joking? But if she hadn't earned my faith with having fixed my shoulder in that first session, you know, and I've seen her a few times now. My shoulder's almost 100% now. I would not have had the faith to trust her on the changing my food. So I'm willing to do it. And my fear was, I'm going to balloon. You know, I'm going to gain all this weight because i got this bone through my hip. I can't exercise the way I like to. And I'm not an exercise bulimic. I run um, two miles. They're 12-minute miles. Um, that's very slow for those of you who don't run. And if I go to the gym, I have to force myself to stay there for 45 minutes. But I feel good. I feel like when I do exercise, I'm saying to myself, I love you. And you are worth it. You are worth feeling good about yourself. Um, because, and when I don't run and I don't exercise and stuff, I just start sliding down. I just get murky. My perceptions start to get off. I start to get a little more uncomfortable, a little more depressed, a little less energy. So I just, there are just things I have to do to take care of myself. And, um, you know, this, this analogy with the, um, and I'll end on this, with, um, the acupuncturist, I think, is really good in terms of sponsorship. I, I found, in my opinion, um, a lot of compulsive readers don't like to get sponsors because we don't want somebody to tell us what to do. You know, it's like, oh, it's just so hard. And um, and I'm a brutal sponsor. I am really tough because I got this whole hard crew, hardcore AA background. So I'm like, you don't want me for a sponsor. <laughs> really hard. But, um, sorry, Sherry. <laughs> but um, this thing with this acupuncturist, she earned my trust. And so now I'm willing to trust her. And that's to me what a sponsor is. I feel like a sponsor is that person who's got your back. They have nothing. It's not like my mother. She doesn't have anything invested in me. You know, my, my sponsee's success is not my success. My sponsee's success is their success. And my job is to take my experience, strength, hope, and, you know, and give it to them and help them hopefully find that peace in my, at my core. So thanks for letting me share.